Paul Orndorff is a legend. That much is obvious. I've seen his name thrown around during my years of watching wrestling products and even playing a few wrestling video games here and there. His nickname, Mr. Wonderful, is iconic and sticks out in the wrestling business, you know, full of awesome nicknames. But beyond just knowing about his legendary status, I honestly don't know what really makes him legendary. And at the risk of sounding disrespectful, he's just kind of a guy that's been there for me personally. And I think that's mainly my fault for not pressing the issue and learning about his career sooner. His name is held in high regards and is held right beside names like Hulk Hogan or Roddy Piper, and I simply don't know why. So that's why Paul Orndorff has been selected for this episode. Let's see exactly why they call him Mr. Wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Learning Legends, and we're going to learn about Paul Orndorff. Centuries turn. There's legends to learn. Learning legends. Learning legends. Learning legends. Learning legends. Words cannot describe uh, how long <laughs> that took me to make for such little output, but um, that is my take on the Reading Rainbow theme song. I feel like it. It would have worked perfect had the execution been better for Learning Legends. Um, I don't know. Just something about Learning Legends. It just works. And I I don't know. We'll work, we'll work around with it in the future. But uh, this is the first episode of Learning Legends. And if you don't know what the purpose for this podcast is, um, it is to pretty much unbury the legends that have been buried or buried, <laughs> I don't know why I keep saying it like that, uh, for over the years. Um, because every single day they have more prominent uh, wrestling stars rising up, and a new generation learns about those, which is to be expected. But much like baseball, much like basketball, it's nice to go back and uh, learn about some of the legends of the past. And um, it mainly got sparked whenever... Growing up, I heard names like Freddie Blassie and Harley Race, and I knew they were very prominent because Harley Race trained Triple H, so obviously that's a pretty big deal, and Freddie Blassie has the nickname Classy. <laughs> and uh, Paul Orndorff is Mr. Wonderful, and I've heard that name since I was a wee lad, but I couldn't tell you why any of them were famous, and so when Paul Orndorff passed away, I felt almost disrespectful that I didn't really know too much about him other than he was around during the age of Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper. And so this podcast is kind of dedicated to not only myself, but to people like me who want to give those legends the, the respect they're due and kind of learn about them a little bit. And so that it's an interactive podcast, if you will. I'm willing to uh, go out of my way to do legends that you guys want me to. But for the most part, I'm just going to be learning about a bunch of different superstars that I probably should have already known about. And a couple of them are going to be ones that I appreciate that I feel like they go a little bit underappreciated and I will share their story with you. There's going to be people from all sorts of different, um, backgrounds and wrestling abilities some are going to be questioned why they are even on this podcast but i am no uh favor over certain people over others if that makes sense and i am willing to do all sorts of different superstars and so here is the curtain jerker episode episode one which is paul orndorff the man who honestly inspired the entire podcast as a whole and so without further ado we're just going to jump straight into his story. And if you need to know what sources that I use to look up this information, it is all sorts of various sources. There's TheRinger.com, ProWrestlingStories.com, OnlineWorldOfWrestling.com, SportsKeda.com, Wikipedia.org, which is why I needed a bunch of other sources to confirm or deny certain things on here, and I think I already got this one. <laughs> so that takes care of all of the information that I have brought together for this episode, this biography of learning legends. Millions out there that say you are Mr. Wonderful. You're right. Exactly right. 
Our journey begins in Winchester, Virginia, where a baby Paul Orndorff was born. This relationship with the state of Virginia was short-lived, however, as he was raised in Brandon, Florida during the city's top population growth period at the time. Describing Orndorff's childhood's best falls under the word difficult. He wasn't raised in the best neighborhood community of all time, and his parents ended up getting divorced at a rather young age. He grew up primarily with his father in a 22-foot trailer. Under the best circumstances, this wasn't an easy task, but seeing as though him and his father didn't have a close relationship, this pro proved to be nearly impossible at times. Because of this relationship, there was a lack of parental guidance, and due to the lack of a parental figure in his life, this caused Paul to seek refuge in the older kids out on the streets. And it wasn't rare to see Orndorff getting into a fight. In fact, there's a story here that I'm, I'm pausing from the notes for a second. There's a story, I believe it's from Brian Blair, who talked about how over the course of one weekend, he beat up seven different sheriffs in the midst of getting himself in trouble. It was whenever he was a little bit older, but that tells you like the kind of grit and determination and you know the way he tried to prove himself was being an outlaw almost. Um, and this was all to prove his toughness. He would, however, find his escape from the streets as his focus shifted toward the more collegiate side of things. To quote pro wrestling stories, whether it was amateur wrestling, bodybuilding, football, track and field, or even arm wrestling, Paul Orndorff displayed a wide-ranging athletic aptitude that exceeded most men's capabilities. Paul himself stated, there wasn't a single sport that I couldn't do or couldn't master. That was my mentality. And through these activities, coaches and mentors urged him to begin working out and honing his career as an athlete early on. This advice would lead him to one of the oldest gyms in the U.S., Smith's Health Studio, which was owned by one Mr. Harry Smith. The bond Paul and Harry shared immediately was an instant one. In fact... The two were practically mirrors of one another. Harry Smith was a man uh, that Paul could learn from, with his experience ranging from football to bodybuilding competitions and even, eventually, professional wrestling. Through his experience, Smith's gym became a popular attraction for many big names. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Hulk Hogan, the Malenko family, Eddie and Mike Graham, just to name a couple. Through this mentorship and through the gym's resources, Paul Orndorff was able to build a powerful and impressive physique, which of course is, off note, is one of the attributes that he's kind of remembered for. Like, he's known as being that big body guy. Uh, that's probably why he found so much success, especially in the early 80s alongside men like Hulk Hogan. Um, this and his athleticism actually probably propelled him to where he is today. I know it started early on in high school. Um, where learn listening here on the notes, he earned many awards, many championships along the way. At first, his main love at the time was football, which is actually what he ended up going to college for. Under the University of Tampa, he played running back and eventually tight end. He combined over 2,000 all-purpose yards through various methods and scored 21 career touchdowns, which would ultimately secure his way into his first Hall of Fame, the University of Tampa Athletics, which is 1986 induction into a Hall of Fame. And it is this kind of production and career that led him into being drafted into the 1973 NFL Draft in the 12th round by the New Orleans Saints. It is speculated that he very well could have gone higher in the draft if he had just stayed at running back and not opted to play tight end as well in his senior year. This wouldn't last long, as I'll describe what happened via this clip from an unknown Tampa Bay newspaper. Paul Orndorff has been at New Orleans Saints football camp for the past five days, but his mind has apparently been elsewhere. Yesterday, he moved to get the two together, leaving the Saints camp for his Brandon, Florida home a 12th round draft choice from the University of Tampa. Uh, Orndorff said his decision was due to personal problems, but declined to elaborate further. The article suggested later that they believed it had something to do with his pro wrestling former teammate, Ron Mikolajic <laughs> is what I imagine that is what it's spelling. Uh, M-I-K-O-L-A. J-C-Z-Y-K, in which he'd like to follow in his footsteps. 
Nothing came of it, and Paul Orndorff, uh, this is after the clip, would join the Chicago Bears training camp instead in 1974 before ultimately walking out of it one more time, telling the Tampa Tribune that he had finally, quote-unquote, decided against pursuing a football career. But even with that being said, he couldn't give up right away. He ended up signing with the Jacksonville Express in the short-lived World Football League, WFL, and which a string of injuries kept him out of action for the most part. Again, we go to an article, but this time it's from the Tampa Times. Former University of Tampa fullback Paul Orndorff dropped out of sight after the WFL folded, but he's making a comeback in wrestling now. On the way to the ring, he also picked up the state championship in arm wrestling, but that was just something he did in his spare time. That's right, as the WFL shut down, Paul Orndorff got bored and decided to have some fun by winning an entire arm wrestling competition on his way to becoming, finally, a professional wrestler after wrestling with it for many years. So to recap, Paul Orndorff immediately just had all the physical attributes. Instead of putting his mind and stuff into the streets, uh, who knows where he would have been if that's where his mindset had been? Who would who would have known if that's where he decided to spend his time? But because he had mentor and mentors and people in his life that urged him to do other things, he pursued an athletic career. And for a lot of people, weightlifting and sports are very therapeutic on top of being a thing they enjoy putting their time into. And I imagine at the time, the reason it was so hard for him to make a decision is right now people already get a bad rap for giving up everything and going and chasing professional wrestling. Um, I imagine that stigma was that much more, um, you know, powerful back then. People, you couldn't really make a living being a wrestler unless you were in a certain uh, group of people. And so that's probably where his mindset was. I don't want to speak for him. There's no like definitive answer because as it said in the article, he kept it a secret. He kept it private. But I imagine between that and being able to find success in the NFL, he kind of was feeling like he could quote unquote take the easy way out. Not that saying the NFL route is the easy way. But um, I don't know. I, I think eventually there towards the end, he just decided he was going to pursue a dream. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's really cool. The opening story already makes me respect him uh, that much more. You know that it's gotten to the point where you know every time that I look at the cameras that another woman leaves her husband for Mr. Woman. I've heard. Well, you know something? I'm losing sleep about that. Now, allow me to preface this by saying that wrestling training has always been hard. But it had an entirely new stigma back in the old days. It was a completely different animal, as described by Mr. Paul Orndorff himself. He often recalled training with Eddie Graham and his quote-unquote hookers. Now, these hookers aren't in the occupation of pleasure, but rather pain. <laughs> Zing. They're skilled amateur and submission-based wrestlers who, in various tryouts and practices, would just take turns squeezing, twisting, pulling, and otherwise torture the trainees to quote-unquote condition them. It helped with technique, it helped with cardio, and just overall helped with the old sense of toughening them up. Some of these hookers included Olympian Bob Roop, NCAA Division II wrestling champion Bob Backlund, and hero Matsuda. There is even a story about how Matsuda once broke a young Hulk Hogan's leg to test his resolve in entering the sacred sport. To take a, uh, a quote from the wrestling news article the new wrestlers in tampa called it the dungeon only owing it owing to the heat and humidity of the place remembers blair you'd get there and hero matsuda would put you through 500 hindu squats and 500 push-ups in sets of 100 with 20 seconds of rest in between each then you'd get down on the mat and try and engage in amateur wrestling for 10 minutes which is crazy when you consider that no amateur wrestling matches ever lasted that long, or takes place after all those calisthenics. Paul Orndorff showed up to train with Eddie Graham during my second summer at the dungeon, which blew my mind because I never thought I'd get to train or wrestle with my hero. Paul experienced these same kind of training regiments. 
outmatched an experiment experience when it came to technical background of the hookers, meaning he came in off the streets. He didn't have any sort of prior experience other than football tackling. Relied on pure strength to power out of moves uh, and resist the veterans for a while there. Because of his physique, he was able to outpower technique at times. Though at first, it was pretty uh, hard. And much like with Hogan, Matsuda was especially there to take liberties on an exhausted Paul. Which means uh, he would train with Roop, then he would train with Bob Backlund, and Matsuda would be there to pick up the pieces. And even though Paul was able to subdue him uh, to not quite have his legs snapped like Hogan... Um, he did, you know, rub it in a little bit. And that's something that Paul wouldn't forget. But much like with the rest of his sports adventures, Paul's excelled and picked it up very quickly. And when he combined his brute strength with the technique he picked up along the way, none of the veterans could ever take advantage of him again. Once Paul began to learn basics of wrestling, it was a one-sided affair. And he even uh, recalls getting payback on Matsuda multiple times. It was this drive, physical abilities, and moments like this that led to Paul Orndorff joining Mid-South Wrestling. And this is in the days of territory wrestling, where each part of the United States had its own promotion with its own stars. And each territory kind of had a different style and a feel to it, and was highly protected against uh, other territories. But Paul didn't get necessarily an ease into it. His first big feud was with fellow wrestling legend, Jerry, the King Lawler. Um, Jerry was the man who he coveted, uh, who he won the coveted NWA Southern heavyweight championship from, and his first title of his wrestling career. There was just something about Paul that was recognized no matter where he went. And it was his physical attribute. It was his uh, ability to pick things up very quickly. And I think that's why almost immediately jumping into the wrestling business, he captured his first wrestling career title and was trusted to, you know, partake in a match in a feud with a legend. But not too far down the line, Paul Orndorff decided to leave the promotion in favor of the NWA Tri-State promotion, which caused him to drop the title back to Jerry Lawler. In the NWA Tri-State promotion, Paul would find arguably the greatest rival of his early career, Ernie Ladd. This feud was defined by the fact that Paul lost the title twice and won the title twice from the man, with Ernie ultimately coming out on top as the last man with the gold whenever the music stopped. (laughs) A little musical chairs reference for you. During this run, he always teamed with Jimmy Snuka and brushed elbows with Greg Valentine to capture the NWA World Tag Team Gold as well. So, no matter where he goes early on in his career, it seemed like he was becoming successful. And that's just how it is. Everybody seems to recall noticing something special about him. Something wonderful early on, you could say. But not too long after losing the titles, Paul would travel to Alabama's territory, Southeast Championship Wrestling. He was primarily a tag team wrestler during this time, capturing gold with two separate partners at the time. Not too long into this run, however, his time began to get split between this territory and Mid-South once again. During this time frame, he had a storyline where his character overslept for his title match and was replaced by the then-gimmick of... Jake the Snake Roberts. Jake would beat the champion, and this signified a change in character for Paul. Up to this point, he had easily been a babyface with his physical stature. Something Everybody knew something was special about him, and he was just a very likable dude. But now he was able to test his chops as a heel. He won the North American title on the 4th of July in 1981 and feuded with the likes of Ted DiBiase, Dusty Rhodes, and Dick Murdoch. Being a dominant heel champion, he eventually lost to the babyface Ted DiBiase, which is a weird sentence to say now that I'm reading it, in which Paul Orndorff was unable to attend the rematch due to car trouble. This was turned into a storyline in which the replacement Bob Roop had storyline-wise sabotaged his car so that he could get the rematch instead. Paul would leave the Mid-South area not too long after this storyline concluded, however. And after disappearing for a few months, Paul emerged in Georgia Championship Wrestling, in which he immediately launched into a feud with the champion, Buzz Sawyer, which would see him becoming the new NWA National Heavyweight Champion. However, not long after, 
um, Paul decided to vacate the championship in hopes of pursuing the NWA World Championship, which at the time was held by legendary nature boy Ric Flair. After a failed attempt, his journey saw him going back after that secondary title after vacating it and bumping shoulders with the likes of the Super Destroyer. The masked wrestler, who at the time was Axe, Larry Zabisco, who actually paid Killer Tim Brooks to beat Paul for him. With Larry distracting uh, the referee, Killer Tim Brooks was able to nail Paul with a chair shot, and then after the match, he immediately relinquished the title to Larry Zabisco. Uh, but due to this corrupt way of winning, he actually was stripped of the title less than a month later by the president of the territory. Paul's last big stint took him all the way to New Japan poor pro wrestling. It was the furthest thing from being the most notable part of his career, but it did show him tagging with big names such as Antonio Inoki and Big John Studd, as well as taking on Akira Maeda in singles action. But not too long after this little stint did he find himself in the big gun. WWF. You know, when you see the turtle with that big old long head, and then he does something and it goes in, but that's exactly what Pudgy's going to do. Exactly. It's going to go inside that shell, and you'll disappear. You'll never see it again. I'll wait for tonight, Pudgy. We'll see you there. That is correct. Paul Orndorff quickly made it to the WWF, and not too long after his debut did he take on Rowdy Roddy Piper as his manager. To puff him up, Roddy began to refer to Paul in many different names, but the one that stuck is Mr. Wonderful, and the rest was history from there. Paul Orndorff would officially make his official... Officially... (laughs) Paul Orndorff would officially make his official WWF debut in a singles match against Salvatore Belomo, which would actually take place on the same night that Hulk Hogan defeated the Iron Sheik for the WWF title to begin the birth of Hulkamania. A fateful thing about this debut and happening, though, is that not too long after, in fact, not even a month after his debut, Orndorff would become the first of many notable challengers to go against Hulk Hogan for his championship, shooting straight to the main event picture. An impressive feat, even when you consider that Hulk Hogan quickly disposed of the challenger and would move on not too far after. Even though this wouldn't be the last time their paths crossed, though. But Paul wouldn't be thrown out of the limelight altogether. He would go on to compete against many other competitors, including the likes of future podcast superstar Tito Santana, who was the Intercontinental Champion at the time. One of Paul's most notable feuds would, however, be started with the actions of Mr. Rowdy Roddy Piper when he attacked Jimmy Snuka on his segment of Piper's Pit with Paul Orndorff aiding him as the heater in these affairs. This shot them into a series of tag matches against Snuka and the Tonga Kid, but it wasn't until Paul Orndorff attacked Cindy Lopper, you heard that right, the celebrity Cindy Lopper, girls just want to have fun, <laughs> that the cameras would all be on Paul. Through the grudge between himself and Cindy Lopper, and with himself not only defeating Tony Atlas at the pay-per-view event known as The War to Settle the Score, But getting involved in the main event to back up Roddy Piper against Hulk Hogan, this would set up the first WrestleMania event, as Hulk Hogan would team up with Mr. T to take on Roddy Piper and Paul Orndorff. Orndorff's tenor as a heel would come to an abrupt halt around this time, though. Due to a miscue from Cowboy Bob Orton, Roddy Piper and Paul Orndorff would lose the first WrestleMania match. In spite of the clear uh, fault coming from Bob Orton, Roddy and Cowboy ended up blaming it on Paul and ejected him from their little posse. Not only would this lead to him evening the odds in favor of Hogan when Roddy and Cowboy later attacked him in the night, but the face turn would be complete when Paul publicly fired Bobby Heenan as his manager, denying his services altogether. Not taking kindly to this, this would launch a storyline where Heenan would place a $50,000 bounty on his head which would put him in the headlights of many heel superstars, including the now-rival Roddy Piper. And the feud would become so violent, in fact, that the legendary Bruno San Martino himself had to referee one of their matches, eventually teaming with Orndorff altogether. It's at this point that I will stop for a second and tell you guys that 
Roddy Piper played such a pivotal role in Paul Orndorff's, um, you know, upbringing as a superstar in the WWF. Not only did he give him his nickname, which stuck so abruptly that he kept it through his entire career, and now it's one of the most notable nicknames in WWF history or WWE history nowadays. Um, but he teamed with him, showed him the way, worked on his heel work, which he really didn't need because, as we said, he's a natural and he picked up stuff. But whenever it was time for Paul to shift and play face, there wasn't a more polarizing guy in the company than Roddy Piper. You either loved him or you hated him. And he was uh, just rewatching a bunch of the matches, how loud the stadiums would get whenever Paul came out to come out and just beat up Bob Orton or come out and beat up Roddy Piper. Kudos to Bob Orton as well, because he is a very underrated heel and he's going to be getting his own episode of the podcast. Uh, I really very much enjoyed all of their matches. It, all of the matches included under the bounty were very high intensity. Uh, they played to people like Roddy Piper's and Bob Orton's roles in it. It really put Paul Orndorff in a very clear babyface role. And so that was a very interesting time as you saw him, you know, go from attacking Sidney Lauper to now suddenly being like a huge fan favorite. And I feel like uh, Roddy Piper deserves a big chunk of that change. But we'll move forward. In spite of this being one of the biggest momentum shifts and being one of the top faces in the company, even teaming with Andre the Giant at one point, it would end up becoming a frustrating part of his career. Storyline-wise, anyway. Not only with the bounty on his head, but also getting involved in yet another Hulk Hogan feud that would lead to him facing off with Don Morocco at WrestleMania 2 that would end in a double countout. But he was also teased by Adrian Adonis, being constantly referred to as Hulk Jr., through the efforts of Adonis constantly trying to inform Paul that he was living in Hulk's shadow and even calling into question their friendship at one point, the tempers would become their worst when, on a live televised show, Paul Orndorff would call Hogan's gym to prove their friendship. This would backfire immensely as Hogan would claim that he was too busy to come to the phone, which rubbed Paul Orndorff the wrong way. A chip formed on Orndorff's shoulder, which would come in form of him trying to outshine Hulk anytime they tagged together. The most notable outshine moment came when Paul and Hogan were wrestling the Moondogs, and Orndorff practically wrestled the entire match by himself, rarely tagging in Hogan, getting the win seemingly by himself. This led to an implosion between the two friends as Paul Orndorff would thwart an attack by John Studd and King Kong Bundy on Hogan just to clothesline and pile drive the Hulkster all to himself. And it would be this moment that fully launched him into possibly the greatest rivalry of his entire career. You know, Bobby, some people would say just what you've just said to everybody out there, that that would be bragging. That that would just be thinking that you're cocky. But you know something? That's exactly right. The truth really hurts. Because Hulk Hogan, I have earned respect. Paul Orndorff's feud with Hulk Hogan would not only be one of the most notable feuds of his career, but one of the most profitable feuds in pro wrestling history. As each match was a spectacle to behold. And although the majority of the matches ended in a weird decision of sorts, like <laughs> it was always ended in a big question mark in the air, it was one of the most engaging feuds and ended up winning the feud of the year and many other awards alongside of that. Um, in this feud, Paul Orndorff would return fully into his bad guy role, but cranked it up a notch by taking Hulk Hogan's Real American theme song and using it as his own. In every single way possible, he, you know, tried to get under Hulk Hogan's skin. He did all of his taunts. He came out and did a bunch of his mannerisms. He would uh, question Hulk Hogan's ethics, morals, all sorts of stuff. And after reuniting with Bobby Heenan in this feud, it was clear that Paul was now committed to doing anything it took to win. But even with this new attitude, the Hulkster would prove to be an overly formidable ally. A couple of the highlights in this feud are that it was a, it, the, one of the biggest matches took place in an extremely memorable outdoor event in Toronto that drew 76,000 people, and it was simply known as the Big Event. And in spite of sounding like a mattress closing sale, this would spark a series of matches between the two men. 
The feud lasted for approximately half a year and had a series of matches that would ultimately result in unclean finish. I already told talked about that. Draws, cheap wins, the lot. This would eventually lead to a Saturday night main event cage match, a steel cage, ensuring that no funny business would happen. And the big moment in this match was when both men sat atop the cage, resulting in them falling to the floor and hitting at the exact same time. Replay confirmed. The match had to be restarted, and Hulk would ultimately escape, ending the feud after a defining leg drop and climbing over the top. Um, This actually, the second part of this match, actually ended very definitively. And the way I think it's explained, because the way I put it in my notes wasn't that way. Uh, They fell to the floor, so they had to, like, redo the steel cage match. And so whenever they redid the steel cage match, uh, Hulk went over the top. Paul Orndorff went through the door, and Hulk Hogan touched first, and that is ultimately how he decided to do it. And I will talk a little bit more about that as we progress forward. Um But as great as that feud was, and it progressed forward, and it had a series of matches, as I said, it was an award-winning feud, Uh, Paul Orndorff had a weightlifting injury that marked the start of the end of his WWF career. Uh, Since the feud he was locked in with Hulk Hogan was such a big money situation, he worked around the injury, but ultimately worked a reduced schedule and soon took some time off to recuperate from it. It was speculated that since he did not take the time off that he needed, that uh, his constant schedule and constant pushing forward in spite of the injury, um, you know, made the injury that much worse as to be expected. Uh, It did more damage than anything and would bother him all the way through the rest of his WWF run. When he eventually returned to a somewhat normal schedule, the fans gave him a face like uh, cheers. And so WWF treated him as such. He fired Bobby Heenan once again, uh, and this led to a feud with Rick Rude, who was Bobby's other uh, client at the time. Uh, This is another star we will most likely be covering on the podcast at some point, so if you don't know too much about him, subscribe. But this would lead to a lackluster Survivor Series match participation where Orndorff would suffer an early roll-up at the hands of this rival in Rick Rude, and after... uh, it was built up to a huge series of matches, and it was supposed to progress forward. But seeing as though Paul Orndorff's uh, contract was coming to a halt, uh, this was followed by a house show between the two men, January 4th, 1988, which would be the last match of Paul Orndorff's run. And although it might seem like this is where his story comes to an end, it would only be the first half, because Paul Orndorff would jump ship and cross the river and soon he would be in the WWF's rival world championship wrestling's roster and from there he would start embarking on an entirely new legacy altogether but I want to tell some people out there right now I'm through playing jokes I'm through playing around with Buzz Sawyer Super Destroyer Ollie Anderson these kind of people the Iron Sheik Matt Boy I'm through with it because I'm coming after business, I'm coming after that belt, and it makes no difference who's in my way. But I'm gonna tell you something, Sawyer. You're the main reason right now that I'm not wearing that belt. And any time that I can get you in that ring, I'm gonna kick your fanny from one end of that ring to the other. That's right. It almost seemed wrong to not have Paul Orndorff in the WWF at this point, uh, simply for the fact that he had been amongst the top of the names in the business at that time for the better part of half a year. His run with Hulk Hogan, being one of the top heels in the business, uh, being part of the first WrestleMania. And at this time, his run from wrestling was so missed and so abrupt and out of nowhere and people didn't have the inside that they do nowadays that it was actually reported in multiple newspapers that Orndorff had passed away when in reality he just uh, momentarily retired due to his injuries. But the time away from the promotion allowed him to rehab, work out, and redefine that physique that he was so well known for. Because of that injury, he kind of let his uh, physique not completely fall apart. He was very fit, 
but it wasn't as defined. And so come 1990, he returned to wrestling on the independent circuit uh, to compete in various matches and carry Von Eric, who was the perfect candidate to kind of whip him back into shape, get him ring ready, help him rehab through those injuries. At this point, I wouldn't call it his full revitalization, but rather his reemergence into the big leagues, uh, as many would call it. Not that facing Kerry Von Eric wasn't prestigious in itself, but it just didn't have as much eyes on it as he would in a company like World Wrestling Federation or in World Championship Wrestling which is where his career would lead him to this point. And he primarily uh, came in as a tag team wrestler. Um, he was mainly there as a foil for Arn Anderson, who at the time was a part of the Four Horsemen group. Uh, his notable run included various non-title matches against Arn Anderson, of course, that would ultimately end in failure when the belt was introduced. Uh, Orndorff would even partake in aiding and becoming affiliated with the Dudes with Attitudes, a group that consisted of the Steiner Brothers, Sting, Lex Luger, and Junkyard Dog. He primarily was involved with their uh, stint against the Four Horsemen. That's that's where he kind of came into the role because he was included in that rivalry with Arn Anderson. But this WCW run would be for fairly short-lived. I think they kind of just fed off of the notoriety of his name, and he uh, wanted to kind of see if he could jump back into that schedule uh, that he did. His last match was actually teaming up with Junkyard Dog in a tag team championship match against Doom, which features Ron Simmons, who is a man we will be covering on the podcast at some point. And so, although not the most prestigious moments of his career, uh, with his first run in WCW, because he would have a second run, it allowed him to brush shoulders with some of the rising stars of the business, with Sting, with um, the Four Horsemen, who obviously ran wrestling at that point, it felt like. Um, this run in wrestling would not be the same, however, as he immediately went into a new promotion. Multiple, actually, as between the years 1990 and 1993... He would participate in the UWF, the AWF, and NWL, as well as Smoky Mountain Wrestling from time to time. So four total promotions within these three-year span. We'll cover them one by one, and we'll start with the UWF, which has run included two giant stints. The first one where he feuded with Dr. Death, uh, Steve Williams, which I feel like their aggressive styles matched each other uh brightly uh it kind of fits the style of today where it's two just behemoths no selling each other and just beating the living daylights out of each other uh and they're legitimately two in real life uh bosses like they are two tough guys and so they were just able to dish it out uh but ultimately he found the most success against his longtime rival bob orton who uh rekindled their feud with and whenever it came to the climax paul orndorff ended up capturing the uwf southern states championship from him much like his previous success on the independent circuit, Paul would hold the UWF Southern States Championship until he eventually departed from the company. Um, that would lead him to AWF, where he would beat Stan Lane during his tenure, which it would show him capturing the AWF heavyweight title. In this scenario as well, he would once more hold the title until he left the company, which shooed, uh, which shooed him, which showed him going to the NWL next. He worked on his tag team prowess alongside Brian Blair, who um, in the late days of his life, most of Brian Blair's in interviews gave us the information we needed for a lot of this podcast, um, just to insight on who that was. They spent a lot of time together. They were very close uh, friends, and during this time, they would even hold some tag title gold. As far as I can find, they would lose the titles right before he left the company. I keep calling them independents, but I should stress that these were territories. At this time, uh, WWF may have been like the top runner, but they had not been as dominant as you might think. They had the most eyes on them, but all of the various territories were just as prestigious as WWF was. And it was amazing because Paul Orndorff would hold gold pretty much everywhere he went. Uh, the only case was Paul Orndorff, as it seemed, uh, was... Paul, whenever Paul Orndorff went to Smoky Mountain Wrestling, excuse me, uh, it seemed he was there to help put a new company over. He would have matches with top names like Hector Guerrero, Robert Gibson, Brian Lee, and Tony Anthony in a very brief stint with the company uh, just to kind of get back on his feet. 
All of this success in rebuilding across the territories prepared him for that revitalization that I spoke about earlier. The return to WCW, where he would be from 1992 all the way to 2002, towards the end of his career. Uh, For all the big moments during the Monday Night Wars, for the rise of the company, for all of that, he was a part of the company. And his tenure would start with him being christened as the man whom Harley Race would manage. Uh, it was a in a brief storyline between him and Cactus Jack, and both of them wanted the service of Harley Race. But of course, being the heel side of things, Harley Race chose his man, and him and Paul Orndorff wrecked havoc on the World Championship Wrestling landscape. This led to him and Cactus Jack having an intense series of matches, including a trip to the Thunderdome and a last man standing match at Super Brawl that Cactus Jack would ultimately win. Paul would get the last laugh, however, as Paul would set his sights on the television championship. He was inserted into a 16-man tournament to crown the new champion. This would see him defeating Two Cold Scorpio in round one, getting his revenge on Cactus Jack in round two, beating Johnny B-Bad in the next round, and in the finals, he would beat Eric Watts to claim his first WCW gold. This reign would span five months as Paul Orndorff defended his title by any means necessary. Uh, with the help of Harley Race, with the help of getting disqualified, with the help of underhanded tactics, he would beat names such as Ron Simmons, Marcus Alexander, uh, Marcus Alexander Bagwell, and even bumped shoulders with ECW superstars after he successfully defended against ECW champion at the time, Shane Douglas. His dirty tricks would ultimately fail for him, though, at Clash of Champions pay-per-view, where Ricky Steamboat went against all odds as the babyface to secure gold from Paul Orndorff that night. Paul would step away from the singles action after dropping the title, with his main focus now uh, shifting to the tag team role. Pretty Paul Roma to, uh, was his teammate, and they formed a tag team known as Pretty Wonderful. Not too far into this run, they would immediately strike gold yet again and take the titles from then-champions, you guessed it, from Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan. That's That seems to be the recurring uh, thing through his career at WCW. Anytime he needs a lift, him and Cactus Jack kind of clash heads until Cactus Jack ultimately takes his talents to WWF. The duo proved to be brutal in spite of what their name would suggest, often resorting to attacking and injuring opponents before and after the matches. And although they had a bunch of gimmicks and dancing and being all flamboyant and stuff in the ring, um, they were very vicious, and that's what they were known for. And although they dropped the title, title, the titles very briefly to the Stars and Strap, those same tactics would be applied to regain the titles not too long after, becoming two-time champs very quickly into their tenure as a tag team. The biggest moment of this tag team run would be when Paul Orndorff was reunited with Hulk Hogan for the first time since their WWF run. This would be the last time they made it, and only time, but Pretty Wonderful would take on Hulk Hogan, who teamed up with Macho Man Randy Savage at the time. And although they would be overtaken, it was an underrated spectacle in his career, to say the least. A storyline that showed stars and stripes constantly failing to regain the gold would lead to Pretty Wonderful's final run putting up team member the Patriots mask on the line, a mask versus title match. It would give stars and stripes one last push towards the gold. A controversial double pin finish would leave faces, uh, would leave uh, faces in the audience blank. As we went to the replay after seeing the replay, they would declare the faces, the winner, the stars and stripes putting an end to pretty wonderful's final title reign. Uh, although a, a great team in their small run. It was a very short-lived run altogether, spanning maybe six months, maybe a little bit more than that. I would say seven months altogether. Uh, But after this run, Orndorff's consistency on TV would dwindle a bit. This was also partly due to the WWF injury that never had time to heal. Um, I also speculate that because of this injury, that's why he was never trusted with that hardcore uh, singles run that he got. A lot of people speculate that he was underrated. He was underutilized. But I think at this time in his career, an aging Paul Orndorff with that injury just was unable to uh, compete with the schedule that he would have been able to do as a singles competitor, be able to 
a tag team setting definitely um, fit him a lot more is what I'm trying to say at the time. He would have a heavily regarded and spectacular match against the Great Muda in a failed attempt to take the IWGP heavyweight title. And that was probably one of the more notable matches of his career in spite of being lesser known. He would continue to push forward, wanting to continue to wrestle through the injury, even after a supposed initial write-off after he was spike pile-drived by Ric Flair on the arena floor. But eventually, Paul would give in to the injury not too long after and officially retire as an in-ring talent from WCW. But his work was not done. He worked as a stage manager backstage as a more uh, staff-based role. He would go to the WCW power plant, a training center, and help develop young talent. And though he would have many one-night returns throughout his career and go to many Hall of Fame ceremonies down the road, it felt like this was really done uh, the end of his in-ring career. Uh, as I said, he went to various WWE Hall of Fame ceremonies, various facility Hall of Fames. He received awards. He was uh, in on-screen talent, although not always... Not he was not in ring, but he would come in as a manager from time to time. He he stayed around the business for the majority of his career until ultimately he just settled in for his private life, and that was the end of his in ring career. And so, although not quite the American hero or anything that Hulk Hogan was always speculated to be, Paul Orndorff is a man that I can truly say gave everything to the business. He gave his health, he gave his mind, he gave his dedication. He gave to smaller corporations and gave them a name to help build them up like Smoky Mountain Wrestling. He went all over the territories and experienced it all. And I think because of that, we saw a very versatile moveset and a very versatile career in every single way. And so let's comment a couple on a couple of other things because I do have a couple of fun facts here for you guys. I deserve respect. I was drafted in the NFL. I was in the College Football Hall of Fame, high school All-American, the greatest athlete to ever come out of the state of Florida. I've earned it. I deserve to be the next world heavyweight champion. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, I've got a couple of facts here for you, and I hope they are, in fact, fun. Oh, <laughs> you see what I did there. Anyways... Before he was known as Mr. Wonderful, many people and places referred to Paul Orndorff as the Brandon Bull because of his football prowess. He was just this big menace. He was a running back, and he would just run straight through people to where people would compare him to a bull. His finishing maneuver, for those who may not know, is a pile driver. He also extensively loved to dish out a massive forearm clothesline regularly. He is the cousin a distant cousin, to Shane Douglas. There was one instant noted by Hillbilly Jim where Paul Orndorff once missed a turn while driving so many times in a row that it induced a road rage upon him that was so extreme that he ripped the steering wheel straight off the console, which posed a problem while driving for sure. And then uh, the final story I will mention in here is during his time in WCW, more towards the end of the you know run when he was more of an agent and not an in-ring role, he had a miscommunication with Vader, who was late to the show. Vader had permission from Eric Bischoff to be late, according to him, but Paul didn't know that. This led to a couple of comments being made here and there that nobody can agree in just uh, on just what they were. As I said, this is a moment where there are so many different sides to the story that you can never really get it straight. But one thing that was agreed on is that it got so heated and they were in each other's faces so much that Vader threw what he claimed was a slap and what many others claimed was a sucker punch. Um, Paul uh, was thrown off his feet and he sprang up and immediately began to throw punches. There's a bunch of eyewitnesses that say it was a one-sided beatdown, that Vader refused to fight back. Uh, Vader claims that when he slapped Paul to the ground, he noticed that Paul missed a carrying case with ring tools just by a few ish in inches. This made him afraid of what might happen, and he just refused to fight back at that point. A lot of details are argued about, but one thing is for certain. 
the fight did happen, and Vader left or was fired from WCW shortly after this backstage incident. Two tough guys going at it behind the scenes. Uh, Paul, <laughs> and I don't need to include this, but I will. Paul said if he had not had his pinched nerve and he had not had his arm injury that he most likely would have been afraid for what he would have done to Vader that would have given him prison time, most likely. But one thing that's more lighthearted than this fight is that Paul owned a bowling alley. In his spare time, whether it was rehabbing an injury or just picking up a hobby, he loved to bowl. So much so that he started an investment for his after-ring career and owned a bowling alley. I could not find what it's called, but I just <laughs> I like to imagine it's just called like Bowling Alley or something. Or the Orndorf Alley. I, th I feel like that would be very catchy, but I don't know. One last uh, fun fact I will give you is that across his career, he won the following from all kinds of different organizations. And this is uh, keeping note of all the different uh, companies that he was a part of, the different territories, the different things he competed in. He won 11 total heavyweight championships across all the different runs in different companies, eight tag team champions. Two mid-card title reigns. He was inducted to, into four different Hall of Fames. He won a Slim Jim Challenge. And he had seven different awards from businesses, corporations, magazines. The top ones being his rivalry of the year and various accolades that were accomplished during that feud with Hulk Hogan. And so, yeah, uh, he had a very illustrious career. And through an illustrious career, you have to have tools to get you there. We've talked about his physique. We've talked about his strength. We've talked about his physical capabilities. But he had a move set that for somebody his size actually kind of surprised me. I said I didn't know a lot about Paul Orndorff going into this. And so to see his move set, it was very impressive. He immediately had an aggressive style. And here's what I'm going to note about that. Here are some of his moves, his capabilities that stood out uh, in the ring. One, his arm wrenches and his big man mat work that he did were just phenomenal. Like, he really made you believe that he was about to take that dude's arm off. Or whenever he was holding them down, it was a battle on the ground. And it just does it in a way. Like, sometimes whenever people get him into rest holds, that's exactly what you call him, a rest hold. But this this time, you could tell he was exuding pressure. You could tell he was doing something there. He was working him the whole entire time. Uh, he had that physicality and that um, cardio for a big man that just allowed him to keep going and going to where his arm wrenches and his mat work was just completely exhausting. His running knee lift, uh, usually to the side of the head, was so effective. It complemented his aggressive style. Most of the, the matches that I'll be mentioning here shortly uh, were just immediately thrown into brawls they would just get into a punching match they would just immediately start throwing back and forth and this just fit, fit that style in the middle of a fight he would push them away just take a run and knee him in the side of the head and the i had never seen it that aggressive and that effective before in such a big man beautiful way he had a top rope knee driver that i didn't see all that much um but this guy had a like whether it be a standing drop kick, whether it be a jumping and <laughs> doing a top rope knee driver, which if you don't know what that is, he would jump, his knee would press into their chest, they would fall backward, and the knee would drive them into the mat, almost like it was nailing them down. And it was just so aggressive, and a big man being able to pull off that sort of thing was fantastic. In fact, one of his main moves that he used in almost every match was a top rope bionic elbow. Um, and the thing that impressed about me isn't this is it isn't the most high flying thing like he's not a big man that's doing exactly what the cruiserweights of the cruiserweight classic and 205 live are doing but he would use this in like a mid combination like punch 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 run up to the top rope jump off deliver an elbow and it's awesome to see a big guy like him just throw those in in the middle of an everyday thing um, things that he is stealing from the cruiserweight. Uh, as a man like him is able to do athletic prowess to where he could do a bridging belly-to-back suplex. Uh, it speaks to his athleticism. It, it's moves like this that made me realize he's not a big, stiff bodybuilder dude, but he is actually very versatile, and working across all the different territories has made him just do whatever role he needs to do in. 
And then, of course, he has a very clean jumping spike pile driver. It looks damaging, but you can tell if you're really paying attention that the opponent is safe. And um, just all of these moves were the ones that stood out to me personally, but he just has an endless supply of moves for a big man that he's picked over up over his years upon years of work. And it was just a pleasure to watch him um, work in the ring. I've noticed about Paul's matches that uh, typically a lot of them start with a before the bell is even rung brawl. When he's face, the other man will charge in and he'll start an onslaught of punches. When he's on the heel side of things, he usually likes to attack his opponent uh, with a clothesline or something while they're being distracted by pre-match rituals. They're being checked by the rituals. It's just a refreshing thing to see a big man with such a fluid, smooth, aggressive style. And there are five matches in particular, or rivalries, whatever you want to call them, that stood out to me in his career. I were I was unable to find some of them, but I'm going to continue to look and watch his matches long after this is over. This isn't just a one-time thing where I'm like, huh, that was good back in his time. Paul Orndorff had a style that made his matches stand the test of time. They're very entertaining for an ADHD modern-day wrestling fan who needs to see a hundred different moves. These two, in his matches, it really feels like they're all just beating the living daylights out of each other. Um, the first example of this is the number five uh, out of the... I'll start with the fifth one uh, and work my way down to the number one where I think it's currently his best match. Uh, but number five is Paul Orndorff versus Bob Orton. As I mentioned previously, it was a rivalry that got rekindled a couple of times in his career. Uh, it, it's it's a contrast. Most of the time these matches occurred, uh, Bob Orton was absolutely detested by the fans. And a fresh babyface in Paul Orndorff was highly loved. Uh, the fan reactions, the psychology, this introduced dirty Bob Orton trying to overcome like a powerhouse in Paul Orndorff. It was a constant switch in pace, pressure, nonstop enjoyable match all the way around. And just seeing the tactics that Bob Orton would come up with his cast and unwrapping it and choking him when the ref wasn't looking. And then Paul Orndorff just throwing a flurry of moves. It was very entertaining to see. And it's a lot like we see with his son, uh, Randy, whenever Randy Orton decides to play heel. He slows down the pace. Well, you could definitely tell he got that from his pop. And in this chemistry between these two, it is played beautifully. Which can be spoken about in this next one, too, as we see... Uh, this one in particular, Paul Orndorff teams with Bruno San Martino to take on Roddy Piper and Bob Orton for match number four. From the moment all four men are in the arena, it's legitimately a nonstop brawl. Your eyes have to keep moving around to notice uh, everything that's going on. And it's a match that you can watch three, four, five times and still get something different from it. Um, Bruno San Martino is just too lovable to ignore, and the entire crowd is highly invested into the legend, into the babyface Paul Orndorff, how much they hate the heels, like I said, with Bob Orton. They're just so good at being bad guys, and even if you liked Roddy Piper, because he's very polarizing at the time, people loved him or they hated him, he had this way of just making you want him to get punched in the face, and it's just very highly engaging with the viewers in every way. Even though the heels ended up winning this by countout, the sight of Orndorff and uh, San Martino just kind of trashing the arena afterwards. They threw a bunch of chairs. They threw a bunch of tables into the ring. It was just a spectacle in every way from uh, top to finish. Number three is Cactus Jack versus Paul Orndorff at a Falls Count Anywhere match at Super Brawl 3. The reason that this match is special, besides the fact that we are seeing Paul take on a more uh, fresh Cactus Jack in his career is the fact that this match paints Paul in a more aggressive tone. Like, he's already aggressive dude, but he just goes straight up at the risk of sounding corny beast mode. He's ruthless. He's out, he out-hardcores the hardcore legend, is what I'm trying to say. And it was very surprising to not only myself, but to many of his diehard fan base at the time. This match isn't the most back and forth, but it's nice seeing Paul in a slightly different element and being painted as a big athletic specimen and a big powerhouse and an aggressive heel like he was. And this match is perfect for showcasing that. To me, the next one is one of the most um, interesting steel cages I've seen in a long time, which is ironic because it is legitimately a long time since it happened. And it's Paul Orndorff versus Hulk Hogan in a steel cage match. I'm pretty sure this is the one that ended the rivalry, but I'm not entirely sure. 
Um, it had a very old school feel of a cage, uh, which is a very wonderful thing. The main focus isn't necessarily beating each up, you, uh, each other up using the cage, getting to the top so you can jump off. Although it does kind of happen, the beating each other up part, not the jumping off the cage. Uh, the primary focus is to escape the cage. So they could be in the middle of punching the dune, and if they drop down to one knee, the other person will run and try and climb and almost escape. It was just such a fast-paced cage match than what I was used to. And uh, even the smallest window makes it feel like, like whenever they're using that to try and escape, it feels like anyone can win at any moment. And that paired with the fact that these two beat each other up like rivals just has the makings of fantastic feel all around. You have a heel moment where it seems like Hulk Hogan's getting the upper hand and Bobby Heenan locks the key, the door in the corner. And then the climax where Bobby Heenan unlocks the door so Paul can get out, but Hulk Hogan's going over the top, and it's a battle to see who's going to get there first. And so whenever Hogan's feet hit and that crowd just erupts, it's a fantastic atmosphere all the way around. And it was just the other three matches that I've mentioned uh, weren't on there. And then finally, in my opinion, you can really do it to the majority of their matches, but Rowdy Roddy Piper and Paul Orndorff are my number one. You can go and type in Rowdy Roddy Piper versus Paul Orndorff singles match. Uh, the one that I am, I brought in just for the sake of it is July 13th, 1985. Um, but really any of them stand out because in every single match they do, both men are so brutal. Uh, like I said, with Paul Orndorff, he has a way of doing this uh, – Arm drag, not arm drag, but working the arm, and Roddy Piper has a way of working with it and doing character work by slap him in the face, the defiant heel, and they're just battling for power the entire match. Uh, the way that Roddy Roddy Piper contorts his body, he looks so slimy, and and then Paul Orndorff's just this big, huge dude that you want to get behind. There's just something special about him. He's Mr. Wonderful. And then the crowd getting behind it because, as we said, Paul Orndorff just became a fresh baby hate face. And it was very electric behind him because Roddy Roddy Piper is one of the most heelish guys in the ring. Um, in this particular match that I listed, I don't think it finished. I think Bob Orton came in and they attacked him afterwards. And so the British Bulldogs came in to even the odds and it was pretty... Fantastic to see Paul Orndorff get riled up when the odds were evened, and it was just a very aggressive style all the way around, but most of their matches just have that same amazing feel, and the great part about them is, is every single one of them is different. They don't just have the same match time in and time out, um, but... The, the thing about doing a top five match, because that is going to be a segment on here, is where I list top five matches that you need to go and see, is... Um, he had so many different great opponents. I could have listed ones where he went against Rick Rude, where he went against Arn Anderson, but I felt like those best showcased it. Or at least there's a little bit of bias there where those were my personal favorites. But he has a long, extensive career full of fantastic matches. He has a versatile style to where he can play any part he needs to be. You need him to be the big powerhouse? He can be that. You need him to be the babyface that makes a comeback? He has the moveset for that. He has a hardcore style. He has a brawler style. He has a technical style. He has the most versatile style I've seen from somebody of that age group. And it's just... I don't know. I'm not going to lie. After researching Paul, watching his matches, and learning about his life and all of his accomplishments, I have a newfound respect for him. Not just by blindly viewing him as a legend, but truly appreciating him for the early pioneer he was. He was tough all the way through, giving a new view on what it means to be a competitor, and I can honestly say that for the, this first episode, for me, was a success, because the goal of this podcast is to give a fresh view on old legends, and for me, I have that for Paul now. Through the many injuries that he's sustained over the years and unfortunately health issues that he suffered towards the end of his life, I want to say thank you, Paul, for the years of entertainment, for putting your body on the line, and for all the inspiration that you've no doubt given the people over the years. Thank you, Mr. Paul Orndorff, and may you rest in peace. And for a dedication since he did recently pass away, and there's going to be a couple of more episodes where we do it because they recently passed away, but I do want to show respect by doing a 10-bell Salute. So without further ado, we're going to do that right now.
I feel almost sorry that I didn't recognize his genius sooner, but I guess, but I guess that's the beauty of the podcast, you know, um, learning about these legends so that we can appreciate them and let their legacy live on long after moments like this happen and they pass away. Um, and if I am able to educate a younger audience such as myself about this man's career, then I feel like I've done my job. And so I will end by saying this. Um, if there are any ways that you've seen here that you feel like I could better get the story across, um, if you feel like there's anything that needs to be taken out or added in, or if there's any effects or criticisms that you have to make this podcast the best educational podcast that it could possibly be, um, then I would encourage you to bring for come forward with those because I want to produce the best product to give the amazing legends the honor that they deserve. And I would also encourage you to review this podcast so that we can get the word out there as soon as possible. I'm going to be review, uh, reading all reviews on the podcast for now, and the upload schedule is going to be every other Thursday, simply for the fact that with my work schedule and the research, I am currently trying to build a backlog. And so eventually it'll be a point where this is a weekly podcast. But for now, I feel it's best being bi-weekly. So any comments, questions, concerns, you can find my contact information in the description. But for now, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you've learned about some legends today. I know.